Welcome to the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In the next 30 minutes or so, I'll bring you up to date on selections from important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our November 2016 issue. This month, we feature several articles from our Focus on Women's Mental Health special section. You will hear a transition tone between summaries. Let's get started. Post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, is a common problem among veterans. In the DSM-5, important changes were made to the criteria. Because VA healthcare systems use the DSM-5 to diagnose psychiatric disorders, it is important to know how many veterans have PTSD, according to the new criteria, and what other psychiatric conditions co-occur with this disorder in veterans. In a study funded by the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs National Center for PTSD, the authors examined the epidemiology of DSM-5 PTSD in a nationally representative sample of nearly 1,500 U.S. veterans. They found that 8% of veterans had PTSD at some point in their lifetimes, and nearly 5% had PTSD in the past month, meaning that over 900,000 U.S. veterans are currently struggling with the disorder. These prevalence estimates are very similar to those using the older dsm 4 criteria. The authors also found that the rates of co-occurring depression, anxiety, suicidality, and substance use disorders were similar in this study to prior estimates using dsm 4 criteria. The new dsm 5 criteria, therefore, do not overlap with other disorders any more than the older criteria, despite concerns that the revised PTSD diagnostic criteria would result in greater diagnostic overlap. Still, it is important to recognize that veterans with PTSD are at very high risk for other disorders and suicide. The authors found that veterans with PTSD are 4 to 62 times more likely to screen positive for other mental health disorders than veterans without PTSD. Also, over half of veterans with PTSD in this study had thought about suicide in the past month. The authors conclude that these results underscore the public health burden of PTSD in veterans. Anorexia nervosa, a disorder characterized by caloric restriction despite severe weight loss, is commonly accompanied by anxiety and depression. Levels of oxytocin, a neurohormone with anti-anxiety and antidepressant properties, are low in women with anorexia. It has been hypothesized that these low levels represent an adaptive response to increase the signal to eat and reduce energy expenditure in the setting of undernutrition. A recent study supported by the National Institutes of Health investigated fasting oxytocin levels and associated psychopathology in partially recovered women with anorexia nervosa in whom low weight was no longer a factor. Researchers found measures of disordered eating, psychopathology, anxiety, and depressive symptoms did not differ between low weight and partially recovered women with anorexia. Scores were higher in both groups compared to healthy women. Oxytocin levels were low in the partially recovered women compared to healthy women. Further, lower oxytocin levels in the partially recovered women were associated with increased severity of eating disorder psychopathology, anxiety, and, at the trend level, depressive symptoms. 
The authors speculate that low oxytocin levels may contribute to persistent psychopathology after partial recovery from anorexia nervosa. In this month's CME offering, the authors of this cross-sectional study sought to identify discrepancies between actual drug use by outpatients with mood and anxiety disorders and medication overviews from healthcare providers. The study included subjects from one of four participating outpatient departments for mood and anxiety disorders. An expert panel then reviewed all discrepancies to determine their clinical relevance, that is, their potential to cause patient discomfort or harm. Of nearly 400 patients included in the study, 95% had at least one discrepancy in the medication overview, and on average, four discrepancies existed per patient. Almost 75% of the discrepancies related to omitted drugs that were taken regularly by patients but were absent from the medication overview from the outpatient department. Of all discrepancies, 23% had the potential to cause moderate to severe discomfort or clinical deterioration, affecting about half of all patients. Both the total number and number of clinically relevant discrepancies were lower in medication overviews from general practitioners and pharmacies. The authors conclude that patients from outpatient departments for mood and anxiety disorders may be at substantial risk of medication discrepancies that are often clinically relevant. Medication reconciliation in mental health care outpatient departments needs to be substantially improved. To read this article and take the CME post-test, please visit the November Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. Researchers have opposing perspectives about whether perinatal depressive and anxiety symptoms follow a constant or variable path. To address this issue, the authors of this government-sponsored article examine trajectories of depressive and anxiety symptoms from the second trimester of pregnancy to one year postpartum among a community cohort of women in Alberta, Canada. In their study, researchers compared demographic, psychosocial, and obstetric characteristics of women in each trajectory group to determine whether women's characteristics differ among symptom subgroups. The study sample included 1,400 women. Anxiety and depressive symptoms were measured at the second and third trimesters and at four and 12 months postpartum. Using semi-parametric group-based mixed modeling, the authors identified five distinct trajectory groups with constant and variable patterns for both depressive and anxiety symptoms. The five groups were identified as minimal, mild, antepartum, postpartum, and chronic. In multinomial logistic regression analysis, common risk factors of depression and anxiety across groups with elevated symptoms included history of mental health issues, history of abuse or neglect, and low social support. Study results suggest that psychosocial risk factors had a greater magnitude of influence in the chronic group compared to the other groups, indicating a possible dose-related relationship. This study also found that the patterns and intensity of postpartum depression differed between community and high-risk samples. The authors conclude that given the heterogeneity of anxiety and depressive symptoms, it's important for clinicians to consider multiple mental health assessments during the perinatal period, at least one during pregnancy and one during postpartum. More research is required to understand the impact of these trajectories on child outcomes.
The frequency of clozapine use remains low and ranks even lower than that of antipsychotic polypharmacy. Some of the reasons for this low use are clinician reluctance due to medical risks, including severe neutropenia and patient reluctance towards the perceived burden of blood monitoring requirements. Many patients with lower-than-normal absolute neutrophil count, or ANC, such as those with benign ethnic neutropenia, do not qualify for clozapine therapy, or they are at risk of having their treatment discontinued based on FDA clozapine monitoring guidelines established prior to 2015. In a chart review supported with funding for the National Institute of Mental Health, Richardson and colleagues report on 26 inpatients with benign neutropenia who were initiated on clozapine treatment using modified, individualized monitoring guidelines. They retrospectively evaluated the effects of clozapine treatment on ANC parameters in these patients. No patients developed severe neutropenia. In fact, there were fewer instances of mild and moderate neutropenia after the initiation of clozapine compared to the pre-clozapine values. The authors note that the FDA's recent changes to the monitoring guidelines are supported by their findings and will allow greater access to clozapine within the general population as well as in patients with benign ethnic neutropenia. Mental health care decisions during pregnancy must consider the risks of both medication exposure and untreated psychiatric illness. In numerous instances, hypertensive disorders of pregnancy have been attributed to both maternal depression and antidepressant medications. Now, in a National Institutes of Health-sponsored study of pregnant women with histories of mental illness, researchers aim to describe and disentangle the relationship between hypertensive disorders of pregnancy and both mental illness and commonly prescribed psychiatric medications. Study results indicate that the pregnant women treated with stimulants or serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor antidepressants, or SNRIs, and those with past histories of panic disorder and cocaine dependence are at heightened risk for developing hypertensive disorders of pregnancy. These disorders include gestational hypertension, preeclampsia, and eclampsia. Risk of hypertension was greatest among those treated with higher doses of stimulants or SNRIs. Current depression, anxiety, and other types of psychiatric medications, including selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, were not associated with hypertension risk during pregnancy. Taken together, these results suggest heightened blood pressure screening may be advisable for pregnant women treated with stimulants or SNRIs, as well as for those with histories of panic disorder or cocaine dependence. In addition, alternatives to SNRI antidepressants and psychostimulants should be considered, particularly for women with prior histories of hypertension during pregnancy. Maintenance treatment of schizophrenia with antipsychotic medications has become a standard for the prevention of psychotic relapse. However, little is known about the effectiveness of antipsychotic drugs for maintenance treatment in real-world populations with schizophrenia. With funding from Chinese institutions, the authors of this article carried out a prospective study to address this issue. All participants were diagnosed with schizophrenia according to DSM-4 criteria, treated with antipsychotic monotherapy, and registered in a case management program with monthly monitoring for 24 months. 
Patients were clustered into seven groups based on the antipsychotic used at baseline, which included chlorpromazine, perfenazine, clozapine, perspiridone, olanzapine, quetiapine, and aripiprazole. At endpoint, the authors found no significant difference among the treatment groups in positive and negative syndrome scale total and subscale scores, or in clinical global impression scale scores over 24 months. Remission rates increased as the follow time lapsed in all groups. However, no significant difference was observed in remission rates at each time point among the seven groups. The authors conclude that antipsychotic drugs can achieve equivalent effectiveness in maintenance treatment of first-episode schizophrenia through a well-organized case management program and family participation. Epidemiologists have explored the relationship between mothers with postnatal depression and the IQ of their children, but the results remain inconclusive. The authors of this article analyzed the existing literature to shed light on this association. Out of the 500 records they retrieved, nine were eligible for review. The combined studies included over 900 children of mothers with postnatal depression and over 5,000 children of mothers without postnatal depression. The authors found that maternal postnatal depression may be a risk factor for a child's lower IQ. The child's age at evaluation, diagnostic method of postnatal depression, study quality, and socioeconomic status did not affect the mean difference in full IQ between children of mothers with and those of mothers without postnatal depression. The authors conclude that maternal postnatal depression may be a risk factor for a child's lower IQ. They suggest that more studies of high methodological quality may be needed. This month's special section on women's mental health features a thought-provoking commentary on a difficult but important topic, postpartum psychosis. Margaret Spinelli served as an expert witness in the trial of a New York City woman who killed her two young children but who had until then been known as an exemplary mother and brilliant teacher. Using her experience with the case as a starting point, Spinelli cogently criticizes the lack of DSM-5 diagnostic status for postpartum psychosis as well as the handling of such cases in the U.S. legal system. This commentary is freely available to read online please visit the November Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. When women who have major depressive disorder during pregnancy also have post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, they are more likely to experience preterm birth, persistent postpartum depression, and difficulty in bonding with their baby. To address these issues, researchers conducted an 18-month randomized trial of collaborative care for perinatal depression supported by the National Institute of Mental Health. They examined whether pregnant, depressed women with comorbid PTSD would show more improvement in depression, PTSD, and functioning with an 18-month collaborative depression care intervention versus public health maternity support services. The intervention known as mom care provided a choice of acute and maintenance interpersonal psychotherapy with or without antidepressants up to one year postpartum. At the beginning of the study, all of the women had probable major depressive disorder or dysthymia and were between 12 and 32 weeks gestation. Most were non-white, not married, and unemployed. Approximately two-thirds had probable PTSD. 
Compared to depressed women with PTSD who received only maternity support services, the researchers found that those receiving mom care showed greater improvement in depressive symptoms, PTSD symptoms, and functioning, and also received better quality depression care. Depressed women without PTSD, however, fared just as well with maternity support services as with the mom care intervention. The authors conclude that collaborative depression care had a greater impact on perinatal depressive outcomes for socioeconomically disadvantaged women with comorbid PTSD than those without PTSD. They propose that a stepped care treatment model for high-risk pregnant women with both major depressive disorder and PTSD could be integrated into public health systems in the United States. Metformin is emerging as an important option for preventing or treating weight gain, type 2 diabetes mellitus, and the metabolic syndrome in psychiatric patients. In this month's Clinical and Practical Psychopharmacology column, Dr. Andrade outlines the safety issues, both long-term and short-term, that clinicians should be aware of when prescribing metformin. The full text of this month's column is freely available online. Please visit the November Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. In this issue, we highlight the following CME activity. What additional precautions should be taken when a patient presents with symptoms of depression as well as medical comorbidities? Explore this CME case and comment activity supported by an educational grant from Otsuka and consider the options as you meet Tony, a 64-year-old man whose treatment-resistant depression is more difficult to manage due to medical conditions. In closing, be sure to visit us online for interactive activities from our CME Institute and more from the November issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. You can view the table of contents on the JCP website at psychiatrist.com or just enter November into the keyword search. Thanks for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me next month for the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites.